welcome to episode two of the My Race series. I'm your host, Antonia de Heinrich, and every first Monday of the month, we feature a specific race, and more importantly, my guest's experience at that race. If you have any extraordinary race experiences you would like to share as a guest on this podcast, please email us at quitxstartrunning at gmail.com or leave us a voice message with a brief introduction and an overview of your race story. We'd be excited to hear from you. My guest today is Ken Bike, and his story is truly astonishing. On the morning of May 16, 2010, Ken had headed out of his house in Menlo Park to run the 99th Beta Breakers, an annual 12K in San Francisco that stretches across the city from the San Francisco Bay to the ocean. The B2B is an iconic foot race that attracts over 60,000 participants every year, and for many, it's more of a party than a running race. Ken has run this race with friends for years, and as he had every year that morning, pulled on an orange Bucknell University t-shirt, dropped off his golden retriever Riley at a friend's house in the city before heading to the starting area. Unlike other years, however, not only did his friends bail on him this time, Ken has no memory of this particular race. I don't remember getting up in the morning, driving to San Francisco, dropping my dog off with some friends, parking the car at the finish line. I remember nothing. Ken may have had good reason to bail on the race as well. He recalls that he had got winded on one of his training runs. He wasn't too concerned though, since it occurred while running in Tahoe at over 6,000 feet of elevation, and he had run a number of 12Ks before. And so he ran those 12K at the Beta Breakers on that May 16, 2010. But something terrible happened right after he crossed into the finish area. You saw the picture of me right before I crossed the finish line. I was in terrible distress. Something in my brain must have just you know, told me I have to get to the finish line. I must have been determined to do that. It looked like my eyes were even closed in that picture. Something in my brain just kept me going. But the fact that I keeled over as soon as I stopped kind of tells me that adrenaline was what kept my blood circulating. I talked about this like out-of-body experience that I had where I was, you know, running around, um, you know, at the finish line and telling people, you know, that man needs help, please someone help that man, and then pointed to myself, and that's the only snippet I have from that day. I think it's time for Ken to tell his story. Hi, Ken. How are you? Great. How are you, Antonia? I am wonderful. Thank you very much. Trying to keep cool because uh, where I am, it's about 102 degrees today. Smoky too or just uh, hot? Yeah, it's kind of smoky looking. I can't smell it, but there's ash flying and I don't really know where it's coming from, which is scary. Right. Could come from anywhere at this point in California because I don't know how many fires are happening right now. So there's a lot of ash in a lot of places right now. Yeah, there certainly is. Makes it makes running quite challenging and not so fun. True. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today um, for the second episode of the My Race series. And we're going to talk about your 2010 Beta Breakers, which was quite the experience. We'll get into that in a little bit. But for now, I'm going to just jump into an introduction. What's your name? Where are you from and what do you do? Uh, my name is Ken Bike, pronounced like a bicycle, and that's spelled that way. And I'm from, uh, I spend most of my time in Carmel by the sea, California, and uh, some time as well up in Lake Tahoe. So my two of my very favorite places. And I own a residential paint contracting company in the San Francisco Bay Area in Silicon Valley. and. I am lucky to only have to go up a couple of times a week for work and a lot of the work I can do remotely since I don't do any of the actual painting and I've owned the company for about 15 years and it's been a good way to give me a little more freedom in life and uh, a lot of fun meeting new people and seeing new houses all the time. Yeah, I'm sure you said you've been pretty busy, which is amazing. That is good. Yeah. So when was your most recent run and how did it go? 
Uh, my most recent run was yesterday, probably early evening. Um, I did have to go up to Menlo Park for the day yesterday, and I got back in time, and I was kind of on the fence about running yesterday. About a week, week and a half ago, I started to have some kind of a, uh, I think a muscle issue in my left leg, and it was kind of making me sad. It's the first time I've had something that was posing the prospect of uh, sidelining me from one of my favorite physical activities. And so I rested my leg for a couple of days and then I went back out and it felt okay and it's been on and off, but I did take the day off on Monday and yesterday I got home and it felt pretty good. And I said, I'm gonna go for a run. So I went out and did a four mile run. It was probably around 6.30, seven in the evening it was kind of strange with the fires going on. It was just a glowing red sun uh, on the horizon. So it was a very, very strange sky and clouds. And it was quite beautiful until you think about why it's looking so beautiful and then it doesn't look as great anymore. But I did the full four mile loop with no muscle pain, no issues and uh, feel pretty good today as well. I haven't run today, I'm debating whether I'm going to because of the smokiness and thinking I probably should just ease back because of my uh, muscle pain in the leg. But um, I, I feel weird when I don't get out to run on a given day and the guilt starts to creep up. So it's possible that I will make it out there at some point this afternoon. Well, don't uh, overdo it because the combination of smoke and overdoing the muscles, yeah, I totally get the guilt thing, by the way. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. But, right. <laughs> but um, I was working um, at the winery yesterday and it was mildly smoky, but I could really feel it in my lungs. It was crazy. I thought for a minute, uh, do I have COVID? because I had such a hard time taking a, a deep breath. So yeah. yeah, it was very weird. Like you, you don't know it if you even like our sense of smell is pretty good. Right. But it's, it's there, even though you might not smell it, you, you will feel, you could feel it afterwards. And that's almost. Yeah, it's a scary feeling. And sometimes your eyes burn a little bit mm -hmm. as well. Now yeah. we're all wearing masks every time we're a mask. I, realize how much, you know, you often have that feeling, well, it's just not as easy to breathe with the mask and it's just not a good feeling. Yeah, strange times indeed. I'm ready for this year to be over. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right, well, should we jump in and talk about your uh, 2010 beta breakers this is what this interview is going to be about um, right. it's one of the oldest foot races in the world that takes place every May in San Francisco and you have run this race pretty much every year since or every since I, what year I have run every year since uh, 2010 and I'd run a number of times before that year as well I I didn't do it every single year but probably every other year and I started in the 1990s so it's kind of a okay San Francisco tradition, they used to have as many as 100,000 people out there and they wow. had floats and it, it was becoming a little bit too much mayhem for the city. So they ruled um, that floats are no longer allowed. So you didn't have people with a um, pile on floats with a keg of beer and making mm -hmm. big parties. So they, every year they try to make it a little bit more disciplined, but they're pretty good about allowing it to take on its own um, culture and its own character and trying not to quash the spirit of the race. And I don't know if you know that the race started, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember what year it was, but it's been, I know 2011 was the hundredth running of it. So it was yeah. when 1910, 1911 that they first started it. And the reason they started it was because of the 1906 earthquakes and uh, fires. They decided that the city needed some fun special event to lift the spirits of the city. So that's when they started it. And it is now the longest continually running annual foot race in, in America, I believe. And it was. Uh, yeah, I, I actually did not know that until I did the research on it for this interview. So. 
I love the spirit of the race. I've run it once myself. Um, and it's just such a fun experience. And so, yeah, I had to, of course, understand why this race is so special and why it's some, one of the oldest races in the world. And so, yeah, this makes perfect sense. So right. have you always been a runner or was running something that uh, came to you later in life? Well, I wouldn't say later in life, but I, I, I didn't run when I was younger in high school, junior high, and even in college. I really started running in, in my 20s, probably my uh, mid-20s. I was living in Texas at the time after I finished uh, grad school. And uh, one of my friends and roommates was a runner. And I thought, you know, it seems like a good way to get some exercise. And he'd been on the cross-country team at his college. And uh, I thought, you know, it can't, can't be a bad thing to get into. So let me try this running thing out. And uh, so I started to run, you know, just a couple miles here and there. And then I forget how it happened, but some friends were running an organized run. There's a sandwich chain in Texas and maybe beyond Texas called Schlotsky's. And they had the Schlotsky's fun run that they had every year. It was a 5K, might have been a 10K as well, but... I did uh, the 5K with a group of friends. And I just remember it being a very exhilarating experience. It was probably sometime in the 1980s I did that. And I thought, wow, that was fun. And I got a T-shirt and a medal. And it was very, a lot of camaraderie and just a great feeling of accomplishment, not just going for a run in the neighborhood, but actually crossing a finish line and being with a group of people and just a good energy out there. And I decided that was something I was going to, continue with. So um, I moved to California in 1990 and was living in Menlo Park and the next town over is a city called Palo Alto and they had the Palo Alto weekly moonlight run every fall. And a local newspaper hosted it and they'd get thousands of people out there to the harvest moon on a Friday night in September and we would run along the uh, Palo Alto Baylands along the San Francisco Bay and that just became a very fun annual event. It would start around nine o'clock at night and you'd be running along the bay and you'd just see a silhouette of all these, you know, just shadow figures running along with the uh, sun shining on the you know, moonlight on the, on the bay. And it was just a great visual. And once again, big party at the end and music and a very fun event. So that's something I did. And probably a short time after, that I started doing the Beta Breakers race most years. I would do another run called Bridge to Bridge, which went from um, the Bay Bridge to the Golden Gate Bridge. And then uh, also did a run called the Home Run, which was around the Stanford University campus. I just did a series of 10Ks and 12Ks. So it was just, uh, it was kind of fun to always have something on the calendar knowing that, you know, I don't want to let my guard down. I always want to be trained up uh, for a run, and I always want to have a run to look forward to. Yeah, which is especially fun this year because there are no runs to look forward to. So keeping motivated has definitely uh, put us in a spot to be creative, I'd say. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about Beta Breakers on May sixteenth, 2010. Now, you'll explain why, but you don't have a lot of memory of this race, but from the several articles that, you know, were written about this incident, you drop your golden retriever Riley off at a friend's house, make your way to the starting line, which is downtown San Francisco, and there's like several corrals, and there's craziness and people, and so... And uh, is flying <laughs> around, which is always a great tradition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So can you tell us what you remember from that race and especially what happened that day? Yeah, Tony, I really remember absolutely nothing from that day. I, I think I kind of have a visual that I pieced together. I knew I, I was living in Menlo Park at the time. It's about a 30, 35 minute drive to San Francisco. I drove my golden retriever Riley up to the city, dropped him off at some friends who live right near the Broadway tunnel in the city and then I found street parking near the start line, which is down near the Embarcadero Center. Um, so I parked my car and probably the next conscious memory 
I had was um, waking up in a hospital. Um, and uh, but so that actual day itself, the run on Sunday, May 16, 2010, will uh, probably forever remain a mystery. You know, I, I, I have a bare outline of what happened that day, but um, it, it was a day that uh, due to medical emergency, I ended up having um, my, my memory pretty much erased for that day. So I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you with this, but what happened is I, I ran the race. I, I know I started the race and I had my bib number on and I know that I crossed the finish line because I have a photograph that my brother purchased for me that showed up in the mail a few weeks later and it wasn't a great looking Ken in that picture. It looked like a very distressed Ken because probably um, just within seconds of that picture being taken, I crossed the finish line and um, I suffered sudden cardiac arrest. So basically my heart stopped about 10 feet over the finish line and I collapsed onto the pavement. So um, uh, the, I, I was extremely fortunate that um, there were many good Samaritans at the finish line that day. Um, a woman, Tara Graham, who's uh, like an emergency room nurse, EMT, um, she saw me and started yelling for people to help. And, and pretty much simultaneously, um, a woman showed up on the scene who had just crossed the finish line as well with her husband. Her husband saw me topple over and said, Ruth, I think that guy's in trouble and needs some help. And her first instinct was, I just ran 12 kilometers. I really don't feel like getting involved. But she took a look at me and thought, uh, her first thought is, well, maybe this guy's drunk and maybe he just passed out from drinking too much. And then she took a second look and thought, no, this guy looks like he just ran the race and he's not conscious. I better get involved. So she's an anesthesiologist, a medical doctor, and just jumped into very aggressive action to perform CPR on me. And um, unfortunately, the ambulance that's usually posted at the finish line had been dispatched elsewhere along the race course for another medical emergency. So it really was up to Ruth and others that came to see what they could do to help out. So there were a couple of nurses there. Um, there was a firefighter, Matt Fontaine, who very, very strong guy. I think he was 25 at the time and was a football player for University of Washington Huskies. And, um, and according to Ruth, did phenomenal CPR. Um, so Ruth kind of managed my, um, my resuscitation at the finish line and uh, it wasn't going so well. She was doing the CPR. Um, she had a good um, uh, contact on my carotid artery to make sure that every compression, every chest compression was perfusing my brain to try to prevent um, brain damage and other other ailments or other damage from the cardiac arrest. And this was going on for quite some time, um, somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes. She was not able to um, restore my pulse. Wow. And um, so I was out with my heart stopped for a long time, being kept alive by very aggressive CPR. The thing that I find interesting is um, Ruth and Matt Fontaine were the only two that did effective CPR, according to Ruth. Anyone else that she would cycle through, they were not perfusing my brain. And to do proper CPR, you're supposed to put down about 120 pounds of pressure, about two inches of compression, and people are just nervous to do that. So because of that, she did most of the CPR with the assistance of Matt, and uh, during that time, there were some um, uh, race organizers on hand. There were some police officers, and they started to tell Ruth to, you know, stop because I was dead and there was nothing more she could do, that she's wasting their time, she's wasting her time, and, and she just is not going to succeed, and she should just stop. And I'm 
to this day <laughs> and forever. I will be grateful that Ruth did not give up on me. She just thought, you know, this guy looks like he's in, in good shape and he just ran 12 kilometers and I'm going to save his life. She's a very a tenacious individual and she wasn't going to let anyone badger her from discontinuing her efforts to um, save me. So during that 20 to 30 to 40 minutes, the uh, ambulance reappeared. She was able to intubate me um, and they did get the my pulse back for a short time. And uh, they told me that the crowd cheered when they said we got a pulse. So it was kind of a happy moment. And they started to put me into an ambulance to take me to the hospital. And Ruth said to the ambulance driver, where are you taking him? And the ambulance driver said, well, these, this guy's not going to live for one block. So he's going to end up at the morgue, was his response. Are you serious? Yeah. So he said, Oh, my gosh. People's bedside manner sometime, really. Yeah. It's like, wow, the, the interactions while I'm lying on the pavement there um, are quite staggering when I hear about them. And then there was a, I'm grateful for this. There's a photographer for the San Francisco Examiner um, that was taking pictures while Ruth's husband was pushing him and shoving him and trying to make him go away. But he ended up taking about 30 pictures of me getting CPR um, at the finish line there. And I'm very grateful for those pictures because it, gives me something to look at from that day. And it's just remarkable looking at this group of people who had this look of intense worry and concern and caring for a complete stranger. And they were all gathered around doing everything they could to save my life. And it's just a powerful testament to the human condition and the human character to have those pictures, which I'm grateful for. But um, there's also, I think it was the, I think it was a police officer said to the photographer who I subsequently met, uh, said, I don't know what you're going to do with these pictures, but be very thoughtful, whatever you do, because this guy is, is a dead man. There's no way he's going to survive. So keep that, be mindful of that, whatever you do with these pictures. So it's kind of interesting to hear that the prognosis for me at that spot on that day was not a very good prognosis. They ended up taking me to a UCSF medical center. And I don't exactly recall as either um, when we were getting close to UCSF or after I arrived there, I had a second cardiac arrest. So my heart stopped again and um, they were able to resuscitate me obviously a, a second time. So that's kind of the, the big event on May 16, 2010 at Beta Breakers. And over the years, it's been kind of interesting where people will come out of the woodwork that will say, oh, I, I saw you, I was there, I had run the race and I saw you lying there. Or I, um, you know, I, we were finishing the race and we noticed that most of the finish area was shut down or I read about you. So it's been kind of fun over the years, you know, you think after a decade that any of the small world stories associated with an event like that would have run their course. But as recently and as in the last year, I've, I've had people who've come forward and said that they saw me that day and saw what was going on. So it's kind of keeps the story quite alive for me, which is um, fun because it's a big part of who I am. And yeah, a big part of how you've changed your life in, in, in many ways. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But so when you got to UCSF, they diagnosed you with what? And you ended up with a quadruple bypass. But right. talk about what they found and how your recovery went. And above all, were you ever able to reconnect with those who saved your life? Well, obviously you reconnected with the firefighter. You said that, but right. I want to talk about Ruth. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I started to say earlier during our conversation that my first really recall from that time was when the heart surgeon was speaking to me. I guess he wakened me and he looked at me. He said, um, uh, you know, you, you collapsed at the finish line of the race and 
you have a very diseased heart. And I just remember just uh, saying, oh, and just being very sad. I thought he was basically giving me a death sentence, telling me, you know, I was very sick and I was about to die. And surprisingly, it wasn't that scary. It wasn't that shocking. It was just sad. And he said, um, you have a very diseased, diseased heart and we're going to do everything we can to get you healthy again. So he was just an amazing heart surgeon and just inspired a lot of confidence. And during the testing that day, they determined that I had three of my main arteries uh, were 90, 90, and 99% blocked. So I had very severe coronary artery disease that had never been detected or diagnosed, and I had no symptoms and was leading, you know, an active normal life and was asymptomatic. I just had no idea I had underlying heart disease. So they helped me stabilize the next several days. I remember, I think I coded at one point during that first night, and I remember all the alarms went off and they came in and injected something in my neck, which hurt a lot, um, but it kept me around, which was the name of the game. So they ended up doing the surgery uh, three days later on that Wednesday. Um, I have a dear friend who's a heart surgeon by training, but an entrepreneur by profession. And he was at um, the medical center 6 a.m. Monday morning with my mom and dad, listened to their, uh, uh, what was wrong with me and what their plan was. And they were planning to do triple bypass and Bernard then identified himself as a heart surgeon, said he agreed with everything they said, but he recommended they do a quadruple bypass surgery and explained why, and they listened to him. So I ended up with, a, with four instead of three-way bypass, which um, I'm assuming is better. Four is better than three, I think. I guess so. I wouldn't know, but it sounds good. Right, exactly. And you're here, so that's that's even better. <laughs> I am here, and the thing that still amazes me to this day is they sent me home six days later after carving me open and sawing my sternum and getting in and and um, and replumbing my heart, um, being sent home at six after six days and fair amount of pain and discomfort. I didn't mention that one of the things the heart surgeon told me during our first conversation was that. I also had three broken ribs from the CPR, but he said, be very grateful for those broken ribs because without them, you probably would not be alive. So I learned that that pain, pain can be good sometimes. So um, Ruth, um, you mentioned Ruth, she was the main person that oversaw my resuscitation. She told me she remembered feeling her breaking my ribs. Yikes. Said, oh, there goes another one and she, Felt bad about it, but she knew that she had to do that level of pressure. Otherwise, she wouldn't be doing any good. Yeah, which is probably why somebody, off a bystander or somebody just you know who's not medically trained, would be hesitant to to do the CPR correctly. Because I mean, yes, if you need to apply that much pressure, you might crack a rib or break a rib. And that's scary, I think, to people who are not in the medical field, right? You're exactly right, Antonia. I think people are too timid when they're they're doing CPR. They're just concerned that they're going to hurt the person. But you have to remember that it's their only chance at survival. And if it's not done correctly, there's going to be brain damage. There's going to be physical um, impairments. And, you know, I'm, I'm just amazed they they were shocked in the hospital when they first started to ask me to you know squeeze a hand or can you feel this or whatever they they didn't know what to expect they thought i might be um might be suffering a lot of brain damage and physical impairment as well so they were quite pleasantly surprised at the kind of condition i was in once i started started to regain consciousness yeah really that's really impressive and you know, we'll, we'll talk about what happened with Ruth in a little bit, but so you ended up um, at home and your parents moved in to help, is that right? Right, my parents uh, at the time lived in Palm Desert, which is about 500 miles from San Francisco. And 
they got a phone call from a good friend of mine who was my emergency contact. And um, they spoke to the doctors in the hospital right away. And they asked whether they should drive up or fly. And the doctors said, let's, you should drive so we could be in continuous contact if there are decisions that need to be made or if we need to get uh, approval for medical procedures. So they had a very stressful eight hour drive. And my mom would always tell me that they talked to the doctor every hour. And every time they spoke to the doctor, um, she told them there's almost no likelihood I would be alive by the time they arrived. They said, you know, we just want you to be prepared that um, it's uh, almost certain that Ken will not survive. And uh, please prepare yourself for him not being alive when you arrive. So that added, obviously, to the stress of their drive. My brother did fly up and arrived in the evening. And I think they all finally ended up at the hospital around midnight. And by then, I had a, a pretty large group of very dear friends who had found my car and my dog and escorted my parents along the 880 corridor into San Francisco so they didn't have to navigate that at night in a state of shock. And um, so they, you know, they were just my heroes. They, they survived the trauma of what I went through. They took me home um, six days later and probably spent about, I don't know, three or four weeks with me until I was able to drive again um, after surgery after they saw your sternum it's very dangerous if you're in an accident and the airbag deploys uh, it'll kill you so they um, had me wait about five weeks or so before i was allowed to drive again with the airbag risk but, and then you you were trying to sort of hide from your parents how much pain you were in because of first of all your sawed sternum and secondly because of the broken ribs right exactly and uh, it's a cruel irony that, that um, well, so many cruel ironies, but I'm not a one who sleeps on my back. That's my least favorite position. And they said, you have to sleep on your back and you can't move at all. So, so those weren't good directions to get. And, and you're not allowed to use your hands or arms when you're getting out of bed. You're supposed to just sit upright uh, so all the different parameters they gave me when I needed to get out of bed made it a, a very painful and uh, long process to get out of bed. So um, it turned out that I needed to go, go to the bathroom probably every 30 minutes or so. So by the time I would get myself out of bed to go to the bathroom, I'd get back in bed. It's like, got to get up again. Oh, man. I just do everything in my power to not whimper, moan, groan, cry, scream. I just um, uh, grit my teeth and and started to figure out how to minimize the pain as I was getting up. I was highly motivated with your sternum, having just been um, um, kind of wired together to be able to fuse and and uh, become solid again. They It was loose in there, so they said you really have to be keep the sternum immobile or it's not going to be able to heal properly. So that was um, a lot of things that put a lot of pressure on me. Yeah, that's not, not a super pleasant visual, actually. No, it was uh, definitely, um, definitely bad memories of that time. But, you know, I just, just remember having such a determination to come back. Um, I just, you know, I'm not one to just, fly around and feel sorry for myself. And I remember once I was able to get up and, you know, walk around the house a little bit and walk around the backyard and walk to the park across the street. Every little incremental progress I'd make physically would just be such a um, motivating thing. It's like, wow, I just walked several hundred yards. I just walked half a mile. I just walked around the block. Um, it was just such a, every, every bit of progress just offered a lot of inspiration, I believe. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it kind of probably kicked in, you made it this far, meaning you made it out of death, 40 minutes of death, 
you know, you, you just want to get back to life like you're used to, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And then, then you'll take every little step to, as, as a victory. And eventually you even started running again, didn't you? I did. It took a while to build up the, the courage to do that. And when I went to put my running shoes on for the very first time and saw the Beta Breakers electronic tag to measure my uh, run that day, I was like, wow, look what's there. So um, I did start on a treadmill at a gym, uh, easing back into it. So another big step was the first time I ran on asphalt. That was a, a pretty big deal. I think I even ran alone. I just, um, a little scary that first time. It's like, should I really be out here running alone? But I did start wearing a heart rate monitor, so I kept an eye on that. And I've gotten smart enough to know if you don't feel good, stop. Because we, we're all very stubborn. And uh, I think most of us are pretty stubborn. And I'm not a quitter when, I, when I'm running. When I start a run, when, as soon as I see that green arrow on my Garmin, it's like, I know I'm going to do this and nothing's going to stop me from doing this. And um, I recall there might be two or three times in the last decade where I've stopped to run for one reason or another, but they had to be really, really good reasons because that's not my, not my nature. Yeah. I think we can all relate to that stubbornness. And sometimes we do There's a certain stubborn personality to even run in the first place. <laughs> I think you're right, but um, you know, I'm learning, especially with this uh, muscle ailment that cropped up a, a, a week, week and a half ago. I'm realizing, you know, you're th this does you so much more harm than good if you start to experience a pain when you're running, and thought, I'm just going to run through this pain. There's not no, no nothing good's going to come of that. So I'm starting to become a little more pragmatic realizing that if it's in my best interest to stop um i can't let my pride get in the way of stopping yeah because i mean especially you know you only have one body you know and uh we need to take care of it absolutely so now okay now we, we you went home your parents helped you out for a few weeks you started walking and eventually running again. And this whole time, Ruth thought you were dead. This is true. She, so what uh, happened? Well, you know, I, I had one photograph from the finish line of me getting CPR. And there was a, a blonde woman with her hair pulled back and her sunglasses up on her forehead. And I saw Matt Fontaine, the firefighter in the picture. I know pretty much everyone in that picture. And Ruth was the only mystery. She would, everyone pointed out this blonde woman on the lower right is an MD anesthesiologist and you really owe your life to this woman. So I went on a mission to find her and I was in uh, several newspapers. I was on uh, several different network news programs. I even took the picture and mailed it to the California Society of Anesthesiologists and they published it saying, does anyone know this woman? She saved someone at the 2010 Beta Breakers and her, the person she saved is trying to locate her. Nothing. So a whole year goes by and they started training for Beta Breakers that year in February just to make sure I left nothing to chance. And one thing I learned from my doctor, just to take a, a detour here, is that he said, once you're over 30, you should not be a weekend warrior. You should train up to anything you do. So he basically said, if you're doing a 12K, you should be comfortable doing five 12Ks every week. So he said, don't ever put too much strain on your heart or your body. So, so I started seriously training for beta breakers in February of that year. And I made it out with a, a large group of friends that year since it was my one year anniversary of the celebration of my survival. And we ran the race, had a wonderful gathering at um, the beach chalet, uh, the park chalet at the finish line. And then I hosted a, a big brunch over at Boudin on um, um, Fishman's Wharf down at, down at the pier. And 
I can't tell you, Antonio, that day was just every Beta Breakers day since has been magical, but nothing quite compares to that year where it was the first year I could cross the finish line and look up and 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 be thankful for being alive. So it was yeah, like, I can't believe that you even raced it only a year later. That that alone is mind blowing to me. Well, I, I, I just felt I had to. It's almost like this isn't a, a dream or a wish. This is a must do. I think that was kind of my, my benchmark for saying, okay, I'm back. And so I had to do it. I had to slay the beast and do the beta breakers without dying. So, so I got out there and it turned out the photographer who had taken that one picture I had, he actually came and did a follow-up article about a month after I got out of the hospital. I don't know how it took me a whole year to find out, but he published an article the day after the 2011 Beta Breakers, and that article was linked to 30 pictures <laughs> from a year earlier. It's like, Mike, why didn't you tell me you had these 30 pictures? I thought I had one picture, and one of the several of the 30 pictures had Ruth's uh, racing bid number on it. So I got her name through the Beta Breakers. It, it's a public record. They, you can look up Beta Breaker bid, bid number and got her name. And since I knew she's an anesthesiologist, I searched for her online and I tracked down a few different phone numbers. There is one, I think, in San Francisco, one up in Truckee. And so I took a few phone calls and finally I got her on the phone and I said, Ruth, I'm the guy you saved at last year's Beta Breakers. And she just, she kind of went silent on me and I heard her crying. And um, I think she asked me to, if she could call me back. So she was just staggered by that. And I met her three days later and it turned out that um, she thought I had died on May 16, 2010, because she called multiple hospitals on Monday to see if anyone with cardiac arrest had been admitted from the race the prior day. And every hospital she called, she, she was told no. And so she just figured, well, I did die and um, took it pretty hard. I think it was just um, probably a couple weeks later She's on a flight with her husband and someone had cardiac arrest and um, they asked if there's a doctor and Ruth saved this person with an AED, got back to the seat with her husband and said, well, at least I'm batting 500 now. So she was still beating herself up, up over losing me. So um, I can't tell you the elation, the, the roles were reversed when I met her a year later where I, I was all smiles and thrilled when I first talked to her on the phone and she was crying. And when I met her, I was bawling my eyes out and she was grinning ear to ear. So we kind of switched places a little bit, but um, that is a moment I will always remember as well. It was captured on the TV news program and I'm so grateful to have that, that video that I could watch frequently to see that first meeting and um, just the joy for both of us to this day, when we get together, um, me knowing this woman saved my life and Ruth knowing, you know, this guy is, I, she has so little ego, but I think I just know it thrills her. I think for having spent a year thinking I was dead, uh, it, it's always just very meaningful when we can get to visit. Definitely. And one of the articles said that she didn't believe you when you first called. Is that true? That's true. She said either someone is playing a very cruel hoax on me or I'm hallucinating or dreaming. She just, it, it just, she could not process um, that I was actually calling. She just, that's why she asked to call back because she's like, I need to take a step back here because this can't really be happening. So. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's such a special memory for her because she literally mourned you for a year thinking right. you hadn't made it. And then this, this reunion is so much bigger 
because it's been it's been so long so right and the great thing is since she saved me she told me that there have been multiple times where in an operating room a doctor will say call the time of death and she'll decide no i want to keep working on saving this person and she would go on to save people even after the doctor said you know we have to stop now so um it's i've been a motivator to her that never give up too soon yeah definitely i i, I think that is a really important message because it's something that i learned from talking to you that you know it's 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 scarily routine how often it happens that the medical staff gives up too early. In the hospital or in public. And, yeah. You know, there have been people last a couple of hours with that. They're hard working on its own. They've gone on to lead, you know, normal lives afterwards. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Now, how has your running routine changed? I mean, you said you're no, your doctor recommended not to be a weekend warrior are you scared that something like this could happen again or how do you like how does your routine change and how does your a attitude towards running has it changed since this incident you know if anything i just become more committed to it all the time just because it's um, i think it's the best form of exercise in terms of efficiency per minute or per hour um, you're just doing yourself so much good getting your heart rate up and you know, one hour uh, run will be the equivalent, probably three or four hours on a bicycle. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough on the joints and the knees. I know that, but I try to run on uh, dirt and softer surfaces to minimize the impact of that. And I'm not overweight, so I, I think I have that going for me. I'm just grateful that, you know, rarely if ever have I, uh, you know, I, I have had that muscle issue lately, but I haven't had any serious orthopedic problems. But I remember as my cardiologist, I didn't have a cardiologist until 10 years ago, but he told me I need to get one hour of vigorous exercise every day. And I said, you're saying this like my life depends on it. And he said, well, it does. So he drilled the importance into me. And the way he put it is that your running or exercise routine needs to be so much a part of your daily routine, it needs to be the priority. And that if you don't run on a given day, you'll think something's off today, what's wrong, what's missing. So it really has to become part of your routine and very ingrained in your, your, your process. So I never think it's gonna happen again. And, and I'm grateful for that. I don't wanna go out with any fear. I just know I'm, helping my health by running every day. Getting that cardio is so important to good health. I've uh, always eaten reasonably healthy and this has motivated me to eat even more healthy. I just remember the uh, cardiologist saying, stay away from fried foods and creamy sauces. Anytime I'm looking at a menu and it's like, okay, forget these eight items. I'm not gonna go in that direction, but the running is, for me, it's a gift. Every day I go out and run and it, it's good for your, you emotionally, mentally, physically, um, you know, the endorphins that get going. And anytime I'm feeling a little tired or not up to it, the first, second thing I think is, have I ever gone for a run and gotten home and thought, wow, I wish I hadn't gone for that run? Never. Yeah, right. <laughs> I will never, ever regret doing a run. So, um, so that motivates me as well. So I just um, have very little hesitation, you know, increasing level of commitment. Um, and, you know, if I do miss running, if I, you know, would get a cold in the wintertime or, you know, not feel well and take a few days off, I'll scale back on the duration, you know, instead of going for you know, 50 or 60 minutes, I'll go, I'll start out again at 30 minutes and then work up to 40, then 50. Once again, honoring my doctor's recommendation that you don't want to put any undue strain on your heart or your body. Right. Yeah. Running at least a mile every day is kind of, you know, that's kind of my mantra. Right. It's very difficult right now in the heat, but, um, and the smoke, but I, that's kind of where I'm at as well. 
Right. No, it's a great, you know, you you can do it anywhere. <laughs> there aren't right. that many things you can do anywhere. You don't need any gear. You need a pair of running shoes. And I've gotten a little spoiled living by the ocean. And when I'm in Tahoe, I'm near the Truckee River. And um, we have a family house down in the desert. So I have beautiful places to run. And if I can't run in a beautiful place, I feel like I'm being cheated a little bit. But wherever you live, you can find a, a beautiful route. A, um, and once again, it's better if you can find, you know, a, a softer surface or a dirt route or do some trail running. But I think it's, uh, you're, you're getting to see several miles of scenery and, and doing yourself a lot of good. Yeah, I agree. I think part of the fun is discovering new places to run. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we're in 2010, the 2020, sorry. <laughs> I yeah. try not to remember this year, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so 2020, so this would have been your 10th year, 10 year anniversary. And of course, Beta Breakers was postponed or canceled, right? So what's, yeah. the, what's the story there? How are you celebrating this year? Well, I celebrated on May 16th, which ended up being a, um, being a Saturday, which worked out great. And uh, Beta Breakers this year is supposed to be on May 31st originally. I don't, so it had always been in mid-May. And for some reason, I never found out why they moved it to the end of May. And ironically, I was going to miss it this year on May 31st because I had a a college reunion that only happens every five years. And I love that reunion weekend and I had something had to give. And I thought, you know, I'll celebrate on May 16th, but May 31st, I'll be uh, back East. And obviously nothing happened. <laughs> There's no debate, no beta breakers, no college reunion. Oh, but on May 16th, I had some dear friends who, um, who offered to host a Zoom gathering on that date. And uh, they didn't let me get involved in the planning of it. Uh, they just told me to you know, give them people to invite. And we ended up having um, 48 Zoom connections and probably close to 100 people on that. Um, my friend Travis and his wife Alexa who hosted it there, he, he's amazingly humorous and creative and he's a musician as well. And he wrote a song called Stairway to Ken, <laughs> which uh, was great entertainment for, um, for the crowd that was on the call with uh, wonderful lyrics that, that I will keep forever. Um, but it was just so, such a feeling of elation and celebration. And uh, it was an emotional high, unlike I've experienced in, in years to have this gathering of people who, um, you know, the interesting thing, uh, maybe there could have been a third of the people on that call that I, I did not know 10 years ago. Right. Wow, there are all these people that are new in my life that um, I would have never gotten to know had I not survived Beta Breakers and the gratitude for that. So it was just a day of very powerful reflection and luckily I had the intuition that when this call ended, the Zoom call, that um, I would probably get sad right away being alone. So I had arranged to have a handful of friends come over for a barbecue and it was really just a continuation of celebrating. And I know coming off an emotional high like that, if I just turned the computer off and had to sit down to a meal alone that night, it would have definitely um, uh, been a low. So I yeah. protected myself from that. Good thinking. Good thinking. Um, so they did um, originally reschedule Beta Breakers for September 20th. And then just in the last few weeks, they announced it's going to be a virtual run this year instead of um, a true run meaning anyone could participate anywhere. And I have to confess to you, I haven't quite figured out the parameters of that yet, but um, I have about a month to figure that out. And um, I have to plan to do something on September 20th, even though it has no 
date significance, it will be Beta Breakers Day 2020. And I want to keep with that tradition. Yeah, if Harvest doesn't get in the way, you can count on me to either run virtually with you or maybe we should just all just gather in San Francisco, you know, a small group of us and run from uh, run the Beta Breakers course. That'd be Yeah, fun. that's that's an idea as well. We I appreciate that. that offer. <laughs> yes, you know, I mean, the harvest already started. It might be over by then. <laughs> <We'll> right. <go. laughs> you never know. Exactly. And 2020, you certainly don't know what's next. Right. <laughs> it's like the never-ending uh, ro roller coaster. Right. Well, Antonia, in addition to the pragmatic and practical lessons I learned in terms of exercise and diet and the importance of running to me, there were so many life lessons intertwined with this. You can't help but learn about this when you have uh, a brush with death like that. And everyone should just be mindful that life is short. We just don't know when our number is going to come up. And the thing that really resonated with me is 10 years ago when this all happened, um, the most powerful thing on my heart as I was lying in the hospital is that I want to do more to help others. Whatever time I have left, I, I suspect virtually all of us are wired that way. And, you know, I had the gift of being able to take a step back and think, okay, I've lived life so far. What do I want in the rest of my life? Because I'm heading into overtime now. So just the joy you get by giving back. And I had been on a nonprofit board in San Francisco for 10 years prior to Beta Breakers that works with um, disconnected youth between uh, 16 and 24 years of age to get them on a good trajectory in life where a lot of them have come from you know, poverty, homelessness, drug and substance abuse, criminal justice system, foster care system, you name it, they had virtually nothing going for them. And we've been wildly successful with these youth with 85 to 90% success getting them on a positive trajectory. But 10 years ago, um, as I was lying in the hospital and our CEO for the nonprofit came by to see me, I said, Tess, I just want to double down on everything I do for New Door Ventures. And, and I did, and, you know, I just was so motivated in terms of my time, my energies, my resources, you know, spreading the word. It was just a great motivator to me to realize, okay, I want to make a bigger difference. And the other big thing is just relationships. Um, you know, I, I uh, was, I'm not married. I was not married at the time. And my friends knew I had no point person in my life. So they formed a team and took over my dog, my house, my parents, my business, and basically did everything for me for weeks or months until I was able to do them for myself. So I realized that, you know, your, your friends are family that you get to pick. And uh, I'm just blessed with the, the friends I have in my life and what they did for me 10 years ago. And it's just a constant reminder that you have to continue to invest in and nurture relationships because they're the most important thing in life. So um, absolutely caused me to be a lot more introspective and retrospective about things. Yeah, actually, I wanted to bring up the doubling down because that was pretty significant fundraising that occurred thereafter to the point that do you want to tell do you well, want to tell our listeners what you guys accomplished it was all very organic and very um kind of the perfect positive storm that came together with my cardiac arrest and me sharing with their board ceo and our board chair that i wanted to double down our board chair took that that charge to the whole board saying, you know, we need to take New Door Ventures to this next level and we should all need to double down and we're going to embark on a very ambitious capital campaign and, um, and you're all going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting if you're up for it. We're in it. If you're not up for it, um, we don't expect you to get out of your comfort zone and 
you know, maybe it's not the best time for you to be serving in a board role. So she charged us with the um, capital campaign that originally our goal was to raise $8 million to buy a building in the Mission District in San Francisco. And uh, we determined that we don't just need 8 million, we probably need more like 10 million. So we upped our goal and we ended up raising $13 million in that capital campaign through just an amazing joint effort. I was only one ember or one spark of many that caused this to happen. I'm not taking any sort of credit for it, but it was just a, a good timing for you know my comment of doubling down and Anne-Marie taking that charge to the whole board. And we succeeded in doing something amazing. That was a decade ago, we own our own own our own 15,000 square foot building in the Mission District. And especially during COVID, we um, owned and operated two businesses that we were forced to shut down. So owning our own building and not having the overhead of a rent commitment keeps us a very financially viable profit where we can continue to do our good work. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at is that you never know what might happen. And this effort to buy your own building has saved this entire nonprofit during this time because so many businesses are struggling to keep their doors open because they don't have that capital. Right. And we would have been in a terrible um, uh, rising rent environment and rising real estate yes. price environments. So, um, uh, so yeah, it was just such a gift and we've, had to get especially creative to continue to serve our youth during uh, COVID-19, but owning our building uh, has taken a tremendous amount of pressure off the organization. I know we will be one of the nonprofits that survives. Yeah. Um, and there, sadly, there are many will, that will not be able to weather the storm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you weathered your storm, your personal storm, um, quite well, I would say. And I uh, just wanted to see if you had any advice or closing words for people who are afraid of running after a similar incident or is, you know, any lessons besides the ones you already shared that you would like to pass on? Well, I, the main thing is um, get out there and run. <laughs> it's never... Well, sometimes they'll hurt you like it did me, but zero regrets. I often say that bait to breakers saved my life because of the confluence of factors that led to my cardiac arrest at that time in that place with Ruth Rogers on hand, that I was a time bomb. I was going to have a cardiac event at some point, and I'm pretty convinced that if it had happened any other place, any other time, uh, we probably would not be talking right now. So I encourage people to stay active. Um, uh, it's running is a very efficient way, as I said, to get ex exercise. You will never regret it. Um, and it's, it's heart health. It's, you know, learning CPR is another lesson to take away uh, from this. If you have a family history of heart disease. Don't assume you're healthy the way I did, even if you have no symptoms. 80% um, of heart disease is preventable through proper diet and exercise. So I want to keep running for many, many years as long as I can. And I just think it's um, the best thing to do for your, your, your spirit, your uh, mental state, your physical state, and, um, and it's, it's a social activity as well. Uh, I just think running is a gift that we can all do. Yeah, I agree. I, I love the way you put it because you just put all the benefits into uh, one nutshell and it is, it is, I couldn't agree more. And I think um, there is a fear of failure in running, I think, with some people. But I think what the messages that you had and I think is a common theme across all of my podcast interviews that I've had, whether it be the race series or the other series is that it's one day at a time, you know, you like you, in your recovery, you did one step at a time or right. a, half a mile at a time. 
So it's just, it, and it, you know, it's not immediate. It's, there's not an immediate uh, recognition, but it'll, it'll happen. And some people recognize it sooner rather than later. And um, I couldn't agree more about, you know, the benefits for your physical heart health as well as your mental health. Right. I mean, don't give up. And like you said, you do it stepwise, start small and, and, and build on that. And if you start out and don't like it so much, hang in there because I know you're going to get over a hump at some point and realize it's the best thing you ever did. Absolutely. Ken, your story is incredible. Still is, even though, you know, it's been 10 years, but I think it's appropriate that we're talking 10 years later. And, um, I'm very grateful for our mutual friends who connected us Absolutely. and I'm grateful for you to take the time to speak to me about this again. Let's definitely talk about uh, September 20 okay. and uh, keep in touch about that, whether it be virtual or in person. It would be so fun to do that in San Francisco, but let's, uh, let's see how um, all of this goes for the next month because That's true. we have other challenges. Yes, we do have other challenges. <laughs> Antonia, I so appreciate your time, your interest in my story, and your motivations for so many people out there to find the gift of running. Thank you. No, I, I hope if it inspires one other person, then my job is done, you know, or our job is done. Okay. All right, Ken. Well, thank you so much for your time and take care. Thank you. You take care too. I really have to thank my friends Jamil and Tess to have connected me with Ken. What a crazy story, right? You may have seen it on the news or read about it in the paper already, but there must be a reason why we were introduced now, during this time, and around the 10th anniversary of Ken's survival. I feel honored and grateful for this opportunity and sincerely hope that we get to meet in person to run the Beta Breakers 2020 together on September 20. If you're looking for me in other corners of the World Wide Web, the best way to find me is on Facebook and Instagram under my name, Antonia De Heinrich. That is A-N-T-O-N-I-A-D-E-H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H. And like my I Quit X and Started Running Facebook page, or join my private Facebook group, Quit Something, Start Running. To subscribe to this podcast, simply go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whichever your favorite podcast listening platform may be. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to welcoming you to my next episode of My Race on Monday, October 5th. Until then, my friends, quit whatever you're doing and start running. <laughs>